so i mean we've worked in the dc area we've worked uh uh in in other big communities and for private developers who as part of their development are building trails in their community so that people can literally come out of our houses walk out the back door go to the yard into the yard open up a gate and be on a trail welcome to trail effect i am your host josh blum trail effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails the communities that embrace trails and the people who rely on trails as a way of life the goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, take a spin through our library and check out some of our previous episodes, which feature some great guests within the communities of mountain biking and trails. For episode 63, we are featuring Charlie Dundas, the owner of Tri-State Companies based out of Huntington, West Virginia. Charlie is a veteran trail builder in more ways than one. And what I mean by that is that Charlie has been building trails for over 60 years, and he has served in various capacities as a U.S. Marine. We recorded this episode during the 2022 Professional Trail Builders Association Sustainable Trails Conference held in Bentonville, Arkansas. Because of this, you may hear some background noise in the audio. While attending this conference, I was able to witness Charlie receive the Lifetime Achievement Award from the PTBA. This episode is definitely a history lesson in trail building. One of the areas we didn't discuss but needs to be mentioned is that Charlie and Tri-State Companies is very accomplished at bridge building as well. I have to thank the Professional Trail Builders Association for the invite to the Sustainable Trails Conference in Bentonville, Arkansas, as this invite is what made the next few episodes possible. Support for Trail Effect comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and Celsa Cycles. Smith's also has a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www. .smithsbikes.com. If you like this podcast, tell a friend or a bunch of friends about the show. Also, please subscribe wherever you consume your podcasts. This will ensure that you get the latest Trail Effect episodes and it will help the podcast gain more traction, especially after relaunching on this new feed. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Yeah, well, I'm not, you know, I, I'm an analog kind of guy, and you know, I don't have Facebook, I don't have TikTok, and this is all by choice. I don't have anything Apple because I hate Apple, and so, <laughs> and I've been right about all that. So you probably don't want to listen to this on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. Probably not. <laughs> at least you're not gonna. Yeah. Here we are today at Trail Effect. I have Charlie Dundas. Charlie is the owner-operator of Tri-State Trails, correct? Tri-State Company Incorporated. Tri-State Company Incorporated. Yeah, which being a full, you know, C-Corp was kind of a rare thing in this organization, but we are. Yeah, so his company, they do a lot of different things in the trail world. Charlie's been building trails for over 60 years now. Yes. So we had, this is going to be a little history lesson here of, of how trails kind of came to be and where they are today with Charlie. And we're here at the PTBA conference, at the Sustainable Trails conference, recording this. Down here in beautiful Bentonville, Arkansas. Yes, a fabulous place. So, home of uh, home of Walmart and a bunch of other things. Yes, and lots Wally of World Capital. Yep. So, how you doing today, Charlie? I'm I'm doing okay. Uh, you know, for being uh, 78, almost 79. 
So being okay at that age is not necessarily good. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dig into your history and how you, like, what really brought you into trail building as a teenager? Uh, well, uh, my entry into trail building was because I was a Boy Scout, and I'm still a Boy Scout, still active in the program, been in the same Scout troop since 1954. And uh, our Scout troop, you know, like had its 80th anniversary here. It was around long before I was around. but. Uh, we we liked to hike, and when I was a kid to go hiking, we would have to go away. There were no trails in our area, and so we would charter buses or two or three troops to get together and convoy, and we'd go places and hike. And so we got thinking and said, "Well, why don't we build trails in our own area so we don't have to drive, you know, fifty or a hundred miles away to go hiking." So a good friend of mine by the name of Ben Triplett, he and I started hiking together locally, and we were hiking mostly roads, meaning, you know, gravel roads and back roads and stuff. And we camped at this farm one night, asked permission, and we camped there. And the lady fixed us breakfast the next morning. And she says, why are you guys walking the roads? Said, uh, won't you go out and walk through the hills and stuff and, you know, build, you know, build you a trail. And I said, okay. So the idea for the trails we built actually kind of came from this lady on a farm that fixed us breakfast one morning. So, and, and when that happened, we were probably about 14. And so in the summertime, you know, basically, unlike today, we just sort of, you know, we were free reign. And so we just would run around and started going through the hills. And we decided we wanted to build a trail from roughly where we lived over to the Kanawha River, which was about, we didn't know how far away because we'd never been there, but it actually turned out to be a little over 30 miles away. So we began to explore, you know, how to get from where we were cross country to the Canal River, and we bought a map uh, that was a government map, but it was from 1914, which was the only map that we were able to get. And that turned out to be a good thing because the 1914 map had old roads and stuff on it that were not around today, but in fact were still there. You know, if you went out in the woods, you would find those old roads. And so over about a two-year period, we were able to figure out how to get across through all these hills and stuff by reasonable routes over to the Canal River. And more importantly, we met people along the way who owned the land and started establishing a relationship, you know, with those people. And make the long story short, the executive summary by 1962, we had gotten permission and it was handshake because that's all it required back then. Not required, but people were happy with that. It would never happen today. But we had permission to build a trail through about 40 different property owners, 30-some miles of it. And we got it finished. It was all done by volunteers, youth, boys. And so here it is. 2022, that trail will be celebrating its 60th anniversary in September. So the trail that 
we worked on as kids is one of the premier trails now in the state of West Virginia. It's called the Canal Trace, and it's all on private property. And the fact that it's still around today is a wonderment. You know, it's a miracle. Today, you would never be able to get that trail built because people's attitudes have changed, you know, about property use and, and all kinds of things. But we're still there. And uh, so how, I know you're interested in how trail building evolved. In 1958, when we started building the trail, we were like much like today, even in West Virginia, we were sort of a little island unto ourselves. We didn't know what was going on in the rest of the country, trail building. But we read some books and stuff. And, you know, we kind of knew, at least in terms of uh, what trails should be like, we knew what they should be like, but we didn't know about what tools were used to build them. So the only thing we had were the tools that were commonly used in the farms and stuff around us. And amongst those tools were a thing called a brush hook, which is uh, kind of like it in, uh, I'm not sure whether it was a brush hook and sling blade. I think it was actually an idiot stick that he used in, uh, you know, sling blade. But the idiot stick was basically a blade on the end of a handle that you swept back and forth and would use it to cut weeds and brush with. The brush hook was a weird-looking axe that had a curved blade on the end that you could catch brush with, and the, you know would trap the brush and the blade. So our primary things for clearing was an idiot stick or sling blade and uh, the brush hook. And so that's how we started building trails. And when we would get to big fields that would have weeds in it because Trying to cut through a big field with high weeds and stuff with an idiot stick was really hard work. Our solution was to get four or five guys together, lock their elbows, and then walk forward and mash the weeds down. You know, literally just mash our way through the field. And then we found out about a Pulaski tool. And the Pulaski tool was, you know, the famous firefighting tool that the Forest Service used. And we were able to get a couple Pulaski tools. And it, of course, had a kind of like a mattock on the end of it and an axe blade. And that's what we used to start digging tread. And when we first built a trail, uh, a lot of the times, our, let me put it this way, our gradients, you know, were not sustainable or acceptable by today's standards. And they basically would run straight up the fall line. And it wasn't good engineering that made us back away from that, but it was after we discovered that you wore yourself out going up and down the hills because in West Virginia, they're very steep. But you'd go straight up the hill, and you'd get, but you'd get there quicker. And so then we decided, well, that's not going to work. So before the trail opened, we went back in and then started putting in switchbacks. So... As I grew up and we continued to operate the trail, we would get exposed to other tools. And so after the, the Pulaski tool, then we discovered snips or pruning shears because we had been using just like the brush hook. And, of course, when you use a brush hook, 
it's not the cleanest of tool use. You would end up kind of leaving stobby or you'd peel the bark off the trees and stuff. And it didn't look very good. But then we would go to the shears and the shears would cut clean. Plus, you could do a lot more work with a lot less effort. And so there was a lesson there for me that the right tool reduces the amount of work and labor, physical labor that you had to put in it. So we became on the lookout then for tools. Chainsaws were already around, but when we were first starting, we were all too young to use chainsaws. But then after we turned 18, we could use chainsaws. So the first chainsaw we had was something that was called a Home Light LCS 47, which was a chainsaw from 1947. And it wasn't really a home light. It was a home heavy. So it was this big, massive chainsaw. And uh, which, I mean, by today's standards, you know, it was a, a dinosaur. But now we could cut big fallen trees and stuff that were blocking the trail. So we graduated to chainsaws. And then we found out there were smaller chainsaws. So ultimately, as we progressed along the line, there were, you know, smaller chainsaws. And so then we discovered the fire rake. And so the fire rake, and the reason was our scout camp got a gift from the DNR, the Department of Natural Resources, for firefighting. And so we got this chest, and inside the chest were like uh, fire rakes and Pulaski tools and these things to beat out brush fires, you know, uh, leaf fires with. But there was a fire rake. And this was a wonderful thing because you could cut roots with it. You could shape dirt with it. And so we added the fire rake to our tools. So, but at this point, nothing mechanized. Everything's still, you know, going along with hand tools. And so we, from... About, like I say, roughly 858, 59, on up through about 87, we were sort of doing everything, you know, by hand. And then we found out that there was a machine called a Gravely Tractor, and it was a, a farm or a homeowner implement. And it had a a rotary cultivator on it. And so in West Virginia, they have things in the coal mines that are called continuous miners. And they're big rotary things that cut coal out. Well, we thought this rotary cultivator on the front of a Gravely tractor should be able to cut dirt. So we had a Gravely tractor that had a mower on it because we started mowing the trail. And that was our first, instead of using idiot sticks, we had this kind of all-terrain mower. And so, but we found out there were accessories. So we took one of those cultivators, took the sides off of it, which would permit us to go down. And we found out that we could actually cut tread like a continuous miner with this Gravely tractor, you'd run it back and forth. It would cut the roots. It would cut the dirt. And then you would come along behind it with the fire rake and shape it 
And so we went from building like maybe 250 feet of trail a day by hand, you know, and when we're talking trail, we're only talking like 20, 18 or 24 inches single track that we could do six or 700 feet of trail uh, with this little machine. All right. So in 1987, by that time, I'm I'm a kind of a man, you know. I'm I, I know though I'm in my 30s, I guess, or even 40s. I was on the board at Tri-State Area Council Boy Scouts of America, and our council is located in Huntington, West Virginia, and you know, it's a ba- Huntington today is a basket case. I mean, because of drugs and just all kinds of problems. But it's always been, you know, the area has been economically depressed. And so young people don't have jobs. And so we decided we wanted to see if we couldn't do something to find jobs for young people. So I said, well, we already have a trail crew that we maintain, you know, our own trail with. Let's see if we can't do something economically business-wise with this trail crew and so we i said for two years we'll use your you know our business license and everything and we'll be a non-related business activity of a non-profit kind of like trail solutions at emba but uh so we did so for two years we took the trail crew which had been volunteers and we started doing contracts for the state of West Virginia. And we finally got a federal contract. And the council got 10% of the gross. I mean, that covered their cost. And so we did it for two years. We made money for the council. But then they got concerned about tax liability and other things. So after two years, in 1989, we incorporated separately. And we decided to be a full C-Corp for a bunch of reasons. And so the business end of a tri-state company, which had been a a non-related business activity of tri-state area council, we were already known as tri-state, had name recognition. We just kept that name without the Boy Scout stuff and stuff. So that's where our name came from. Uh, We were incorporated and we started business. So we started doing trails for the Forest Service, but we were still doing trails by manual means because the trails that were being built in that time frame were still 18, 24 inches. So they were all, they were very doable by hand tools, but we had something that nobody else had. And that circled back to the Gravely Tractor. So we were getting contracts because we knew we could build 600 feet of trail today in almost any, any, any terrain where our competitors could only build maybe three or 400 feet of trail. So we were using machines to build trails, very primitive machine, back in the 80s. We didn't know about many excavators. Many excavators essentially were not much around. They were sort of around, but they weren't common, you know, maybe on the West Coast, but not in West Virginia, not in the East. So we continued to work building trail by hand, and it was almost like it was a religion to us. 
you know, that that's how you build trail. You built trail with Pulaski Tool and Fire Rake and McLeod. And, you know, you all did it and you hand tamped it and, and, and you would use snips and chainsaws and you'd cut root. And we learned all about the four service specs, you know, about back sloping, out sloping and how to build switchbacks and all that stuff. So our frame of reference as we continued on in business was the United States Force Service Trail Specs. So that is a standard that we still use because it's engineered, it's proven, it works. And so that kind of collars the view that we have, you know, the worldview that we're in, where there is another view and another standard of specs generated by EMBA, International Mountain Biking Association, and they're not the same. But the world that we live in is the federal specs and, and Forest Service rules. So the first exposure we had to an excavator, Mini-X, was we built a bridge for the U.S. Forest Service at a place called Quarter Branch or Stony Creek, and everything had to be flown in by helicopter. And so I'm sure maybe some of the people said, well, how will you know something about helicopters and all that? Well, in addition to my trail building, I spent 30 years in the Marine Corps and was a combat engineer, and I was an infantry officer, and I was also an intelligence officer, but I had lots of exposure to helicopters. So I had done logistics and stuff, as well as combat assaults and helicopters. So I had no problem the idea of using a helicopter to move material and stuff. So our first helicopter project was in 1992. And so we had to do a lot of excavation. So we rented a Takeuchi excavator from a local hardware store, took it down into Virginia where we were going to do the work, and the helicopters that were available at that time, they, they were light, only had light lift. You know, they could lift about 5,000 pounds. Well, the excavator weighed that. And so there are issues with helicopters in terms of temperature and humidity and stuff. And to safely, you can't safely lift your maximum lift except in perfect condition. So we disassembled the excavator, put it on pallets, And then they came in with the helicopter and lifted the pallets up. And then we put it all back together, you know, down on the job site. So that was our first. So, and we were just, I mean, we weren't digging by hand. We weren't taking maddox. We weren't taking spuds. We were able to dig the foundations for the abutments and not do it by hand and shape and do stuff. We said, wow, this is, this is neat. So we finished that job up, which we got an award for, by the way. And uh, then we decided, I wonder if we could do this thing, you know, to build trails with. So we then rented a Bobcat mini excavator for a job for the Forest Service, again, over in Virginia. And we liked it so well that we went ahead and bought it when we finished the job. And we used that excavator for probably six or eight years. And it was finally beginning to wear out. And so then we bought a cat mini excavator, which, and cats are what we still use. And, you know, we'll not get into brands, but we're cat guys and we're still guys, still chainsaws, 
and we're cat excavators. But the reason we like cat, they're very durable. No matter where you go in the world, there'll be a cat dealer or a cat, you know, so we can get it worked on. And we found out that unlike other excavators, when you're building trail with machines, the, the body of the excavator does lots of rotation left and right. Most excavators are built with the idea that you're digging a ditch, which means you're just kind of moving along forward and occasionally setting dirt out. But you spin a lot. And so there's a ring gear in excavators, and those ring gears wear out, except they don't wear out in cats because they're much heavier quality, better bearings. And lots of excavators, I'm not going to mention brands particularly, but at around 900 hours, they start to growl and they start to wear out. To repair one, you have to lift the body off of it. You totally disassemble it. It's very expensive. Our cat units, which typically we keep them for three or four, th- at the end of that time, they're still as good as the day you know we bought them. So that's why we use cat, just because they're very, as long as you maintain them and keep them lubed, everything, they're good. So, you know, now we're using the mini excavator to build trails. And, but the other thing that has happened in this time is another piece of machinery has come online not for trail building, but for trail maintenance and management on the part of the Forest Service. And that's the ATV. Because Forest Service guys don't necessarily like to have to anymore have to walk 15 or 20 miles with tools on their backs, you know, to do the work. So if we widen the trails, we can get our ATVs over them and they don't have a lot of manpower anymore, so the ATV permits the crews to walk. Plus, if they have a fire, they can get in. So we ended up, instead of building 18 and 24 or 30-inch trails, we're now suddenly building you know, 48-inch trails. You cannot build 48-inch trails by hand unless you've got an immense number of people and so, you know, the Roman Empire and the Chinese Empire with thousands of people building roads by hands and stuff, they're just simply not available. And you can't even, if you tried to pay people and hire people to do it, you can't find them. Those people don't want to do that kind of work. So suddenly, we're now building trails that we can't build by hand. So they have to build them another way. So we build a machine and we're using Caterpillar Mini X's. So... Back in California, there's a guy by the name of Morrison who invents and builds the Morrison trail building machine, which is a little kind of a mini bulldozer with a blade that articulates, six-way blade, and it has a bucket on it for excavation. And, of course, we're in West Virginia and the East Coast. We don't know anything about the Morrison machine. but about the same time, a company called Sutter ends up building a mini bulldozer. Now, this is all going on while we're kind of in our little dark world here on the East Coast. And so the Sutter Mini X, or I mean, Sutter Doe Trail Dozer, kind of comes online. It's a Sutter 450. And it's being used by the Forest Service, tested by the Forest Service. They do lots of work 
on the Pacific Crest Trail with the thing, and it turns out to be a great, great machine. And our first exposure to the Sutter doesn't come until about, uh, I'm going to say, about maybe 2000. And one of our competitors in the East, a guy by the name of Woody Keene and Trail Dynamics out of North Carolina, they have a Sutter. And they start bidding jobs, and we start bidding against them, and we can't get contracts. They're constantly underbidding us. And the reason is their process with the Sutter allows them to build a lot more trail in a day than we can build. So, uh, and, and we just weren't sure about the Sutter. We were reasonably sure that in kind of flat areas and stuff, it would do all right. But in rocky areas, you know, with scree and talus and stuff, that it wouldn't do very well because steel tracks and rocks don't get along well. And that is true. In, in, in rough rocks and stuff, the Sutter can't get it. But the Mini X can. But the best of all worlds is the Mini X and the Sutter. Because you cannot build trail with a Sutter or a Swaco. That's the other model. You can build tread. You can push through thousands of feet. You know, if you can keep if you can keep your operator awake and the fuel in the machine, God knows how far you could go in a day. You know, in the right conditions, you could go four, five, six miles a day, but you haven't built trail. All you've done is pushed a flat thing over. And then you still have to backslope it. You have to outslope it. You have to dress it, clean it up, and cut roots and stuff. But working together, the two machines, uh, you know, can do a great job. So, you know, we, because we were working mostly in the mountains in the east, we thought we didn't need to sutter. You know, we would continue to build with the mini X and hand tools. And then I guess I can't remember exactly the first contract. It may have been we did a job for the state of West Virginia and it had a lot of miles of trail. Well, I take that back. We did a job for the state of Virginia at a place called Hungry Mother State Park, and it had a lot of miles of trail, and it was very steep, but it was all potentially workable by Sutter. So I decided, let's try one, let's rent one, and uh, we'll see. So this was in, I'm going to say, like 2000. 10 or so, something like that. So we rented the Sutter, and it cost us $5,000 just to have it shipped across the country, and then $5,000 a month. And so we said, this thing had better be productive. So we had been struggling because of the immense amount of digging that we had to do because of how steep the terrain was. We were not making very many feet a day at this place. And said, so we needed something to be able to push tread through. So we started using the, the Sutter, and damn, it just went right along, except when we got to the rocky areas, which it just couldn't handle. And so then we would bring the excavator forward, 
and it would do the work. And sometimes the rock was so heavy that we had to use hydraulic breakers and because either the excavator or the shutter could handle the solid rock. And we were making 80 and 90 feet a day by just jackhammering our way through the rock. But it turned out that the shutter was a godsend. You know, it basically saved us on the contract and it made things so much easier. And it was clear that the best solution was the mix of the shutter and the Mini X. And we had been reluctant to use the shutter. We had a bias against it because we just didn't think it would do. So we decided this, we got to get one. And, but we had this shutter that we had rented and we were getting ready that we had to pay $5,000 to ship it back across the country. And serendipity turns out the Forest Service had a contract close by and they needed another shutter. And Cam Lockwood, at that time, they had this enterprise group called Trails Unlimited. I don't know whether you know Cam or not. But anyway, it was a very controversial thing because it was a federal unit that was engaged in free enterprise in direct competition with PTA members and other trail builders. So a lot of people didn't like them because they were subsidized government unit doing the same work that we were doing. But they needed another one. So we called Sutter and said, look, can they just come and pick ours up? And so we handed them the Sutter. They drove off and we didn't have to pay the $5,000 that we had budgeted, you know, to send it back. So we took the 5000 as, you know, profit. But at that time, we decided we have to have one. So we started looking around, and we found somebody that had been to one of our trail conferences, and they had bought a Sutter thinking they were going to go into trail business. They found out it was much harder. He was a landscaper, and it was just more difficult than he thought it would be. And so he had to Sutter, and uh, so we bought it used, and we kept it for by you know, a number of years, and then we bought our most recent Sutter, which is a model called Sutter 500. And so we, na- I mean, we have a fleet of stuff now. You know, we've got a Sutter dozer, we've got a cat excavator. We were one of the first companies in PTBA to use double drum rollers. Everybody was using the plate compactors, and plate compactors are okay, but if you've got 10 or 20 miles of trail that is like four feet or five feet wide and you try to compact it with plate compactor, it will kick your ass. And so we had a big job in North Carolina where we were doing like 11 or 12 miles trail. We were using, you know, all of our other mechanized tools, our plate compactor. And we, we made the determination that we could not use the plate compactor because the soils were so dry, the thing wouldn't advance. It just make a column of dust. So we said, there has to be another way of doing this. So we tried, we had used rollers on other contracts for like gravel and stuff. And so I said, let's see what we can find. So our first solution was kind of one of the walk behind double drum rollers that had the big long handle on them. But it takes like eight or nine guys to turn the thing. And so that didn't work for us. Then I said, well, let's see if we can find a small ride on that's hydraulic. And so we did, and that took over everything. So we used it for a week or so, and I said, well, it's nuts. I said, we're paying for rent. Let's just go ahead and buy one. So we found a used equipment place there locally that had a bow mag, which is a German unit, very high quality. And so we bought the bow mag. So now 
on the trail. We're operating uh, the Sutter Dozer. It's cutting the tread. Uh, we're using the Cat Mini Excavator, which is doing the shaping. Uh, we're using the Bomag Roller, which is doing the compacting. We're still using occasionally the plate compactor to do some stuff on the edge of the trail. And we're using a mechanical mule, which is a piece of military equipment, which is articulated steering, a little, in effect, a small platform truck that follows along and it carries diesel fuel. It carries lubricants and oil. It carries lunch, you know, ice and drinks in the, you know, the cooler. And it also carries uh, people in the sense you don't have to walk in, you could ride in and generators, tools, whatever, and then various carries, you know, material for construction. But it's in the line. And then on this particular contract behind it is a uh, chipper. Because, you know, like you feed brushes, chip. Because on this contract there in North Carolina, there were lots of just little pines, little tiny pines. And there were no leaves to cover over because we down there, the contract language says you could only do 500 feet a day that had to be totally finished before you moved on because of uh, siltation. You know, we're up above a big lake. And uh, Lake James, owned by Duke Energy. So you couldn't do anything to put any silt out. So we, you could do 500 feet. Well, you had to cover it. There were no leaves or vegetative material. There were only pine needles, and the pine needles were often stuck together and hard to move, but there were lots of pine trees. So what we would do is we would operate the chipper, and it had a tube that could turn on it, and just like long highways where you see them blowing the stuff out. So we would just feed the pine trees into it and spray the wood chips and the needles and stuff off the trees over the disturbed earth, and it was great. Plus, it also got rid of the brush along the side of the trail, so you didn't have, like, the cut limbs and everything. So now it's like this caravan. You know, here's the dozer in the front. Here's the excavator. Here's a, you know, here actually is the, the mule and the, uh, uh, the chipper, and then bringing up the rear, you know, is the roller to dress and compact everything up. And so we're now building full bench. No, I, I, I have to give you a little explanation on that. You probably know what full bench is. The clients all want full bench now. Before you could like do half bench. And, but what happens is the part that's not full ends up sloughing away. So we're doing full bench. So that means we're basically building a five-foot-wide trail. And so the trail will accommodate all the equipment that we have. And we are able to build in a day. You know, we used to be able to build like, you know, maybe 250, 300 feet a day of 18, 20-inch-wide trail. Now we're building, depending on terrain, 1,200, 2,000 feet, totally finished trail, five feet wide. Now, that is an evolution. And this is being done with two or three people. 
And so the lonely limiting factor on us is the fact that we have to actually finish, that you cannot leave unstabilized trail. So here we are, you know, as a company, 35 years later, having involved from a totally, you know, hardcore hand construction, being reluctant, being Luddites, you know, to shift to machinery, probably being the leading mechanized company in the association. But it also has to do with the fact that I'm now almost 79 years old and can't go out and do the work by hand, but I can sit and park my ass on a machine and do the work. So that's the evolution. Let's get into the community side of things. You know, obviously trails, you know, the whole point of, well, the, the whole point of this podcast is that trails help build communities. Yes, they do. You know, and you had alluded early on that you were going to use trail building or trail maintenance as a means of economic development for your depressed region. Okay. Well, everybody knows now, everybody that's willing to open their ears or open their eyes and read that trails bring money and bring development and bring well-being and health to communities that have trails. We're setting in, first off, let me back up. I live in a community that had like 85,000 people in it. That was in the 80s. The town now has less than 40,000 in it. It had major industry, you know, associated primarily with steel building and with the railroads and with coal. And now the community is full of, uh, you know, meth and crack and cocaine and heroin and crime, abandoned buildings, burnt out buildings, and a drug pipeline to Detroit, you know, that, that just has totally wrecked the area. And I don't know there's going to be any recovery from it. I'm sitting today talking to you in a town in Bentonville, Arkansas, that's got hundreds of miles of trail around it. And I look around this community and everywhere you look, there are people on bicycles. There are murals painted on buildings showing people on bicycles. And the, the town is vibrant. It's neat. It's clean. And everybody's into it. And it went from not, it, it, you know, it was an older kind of, you know, backwater town. But it's amazing. I mean, it's just a difference in day and night. We have done, we have kind of, we're unusual in that we do lots of urban stuff. So, I mean, we've worked in the D.C. area. We've worked uh, uh, in, in other big communities and for private developers who, as part of their development, are building trails in their community so that people can literally come out of our houses, walk out the back door, go to the yard, into the yard, open up a gate, and be on a trail. And we make lots of money building those kinds of trails in these urban developments. So people recognize the value of trails, especially people that are into development who will benefit, not only will the community benefit, but being quite crass about it, if you're a builder or a developer, it is to your benefit to put trails in your community because it makes them more attractive. 
And if it makes it more attractive, it makes it easier for you to sell your units and, you know, end up making money. And so they bring money, but more importantly, for the people who live in those communities, they bring health and well-being. You know, they're out. And so that's the thing that I like about it. The other thing that I like about it that, that we're doing as opposed to, you know, we're not bike-centric, you know, because we do lots of stuff. But we're building trails for bikers, but we're building what we call family-friendly trails, meaning that families can go out with their kids, and the whole family, you know, little kids, they can all, just like the guy talked about, you know, and he showed in his slides with the little kids on the bike. That's what we're building. We're building trails that little kids and families and old people all can go out and be on. So you'll see a retired, you know, husband and wife walking along holding hands. And then here comes a, you know, you know, a young family with their kids and they're all riding along and they got room to do it. So we're building family friendly, you know, trails, but bikers also, because we build flow into them and we put other stuff, but that's what we're doing. But we aren't, building a rip snorting you know 100 percent, you know you know rocket launching you know ramps you know to go jumping off of it's not that we couldn't do it they just we have no interest in doing it because we're making money you know at, at what we do <laughs> yeah and one of the things we had talked about and you're pretty open about this is we talked about this before recording just to be clear about the impact that mountain biking specifically has kind of had in trails, on the trail industry in general. Okay, yeah. And, and, and I will say this, I mean, and everybody knows, I mean, I, I am, you know, I, you know, I'm kind of a dinosaur, you know. There, there are only a handful of us left in the association that are not bike-centric. But all of us do bike stuff, don't get me wrong. Uh but I grew up in an environment, again, working for the Forest Service. When we first started working for the Forest Service, you know, they did not permit mountain bikes on their trails. And, of course, their trails really weren't built for mountain bikes. You know, they, they, and they could not sustain mountain bikes being on them because of, you know, we don't like to talk about it, but rutting, you know, from the, the, the wheels. And so we'd be on the job. We were authorized to shoe off mountain bikers. So I spent... 15, 20 years shooing off mountain bikers off of trails that we were building. And then, of course, I, I guess they saw the light or political pressure or whatever. You know, we couldn't chase mountain bikers off. And so one of the great joys of my life went away, you know. So, <laughs> you know, couldn't go and run them off. But here's what's happened. There was a period of time where, for whatever reason, Pedestrian use on trails diminished because of the appearance of mountain bikes. And so the Forest Service had thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of miles of trails that had been built for pedestrians that were not being maintained, that were falling into disrepair. And at the same time, you had this rise in people that rode mountain bikes were organized as clubs and were out doing things and building trails and maintaining trails and so this new wave or surge basically led to i think the salvation of the trail industry 
in this country or the trail movement. Let's not necessarily call it the trail industry. We're a trail industry, but we serve a movement. And quite frankly, if it were not for mountain bikes, you know, we wouldn't have anything. We still have it, but it wouldn't be anywhere where it is, you know, compared to what it is now. So, you know, as much as I hate to say it, mountain bikes have been the salvation of, you know, trails in this country. And that, that will surprise a lot of people. You know, I, I told Mike Passo at American Trail, and he even, I told him, you had permission to publish it, that I said that. But I will admit it. And, uh, you know, so I will admit that I was, you know, I had, you know, I was wrong maybe about mountain bikes. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, and it's apostasy, that mountain bike trails are not sustainable except with large amount of maintenance, you know, but we build trails that are sustainable with minimal maintenance. So that's the difference, but it's a different kind of trail. You know, that's all I'm saying, but don't tell me that mountain bike trails are sustainable because they aren't, they're only sustainable because you do lots of maintenance on them in terms of drainage ruts, and everything. It depends on the soil and stuff, but you know, the fact is they are. Yeah. I got two quick things here. I think people are going to start walking in. So we're going to, want to yeah. wrap this thing up in the next 10 minutes or so but one story you told me before record we recorded was a nika trail that you had built yes okay let's talk about that is that i'm assuming that's a sustainable trail yes it is because we built it <laughs> and we were very careful you know one of the problems always with bike trails is draining you yeah. know and we you know we're really into drainage so all of our bank turns and all the things that we put in on it Every one of them will drain. They will not hold water. And, I mean, they just don't. Trust me. You know, not only do are they banked, but we also put grades in them. So the water will drain out of them. So the way we got into and Zach Adams of Appalachian Dirt, who's a friend of ours, he lived in the area. Unfortunately, his, his heart was broken because he didn't get the contract. It was in his backyard. But we were told that we were going to build this NICA trail. And NICA is the National Interscholastic Cycling Association. It covers kids that are basically, I guess, middle school, junior high school, through high school. And they organize teams, and they're competitive in the sense that they, you know, both as individuals and the teams, they can compete. And it's not cutthroat, you know, competition. But when we started looking into it, we were saying, well, what standards, you know? And so no one could really tell us, you know, we, I mean, we spent weeks and weeks trying to find the standards and we finally got a hold of somebody. And basically, you know, the bottom line is in theory, if you build, though no one could tell in writing, we never did really find anything. They're not supposed to do jumps. You know, the wheels in theory on Nike courses are never supposed to leave the ground because one, you're dealing with kids, but they want it to be exciting and they want to have flow. And so the other thing was that this trail system that we were building for a Nike event would also become part of the pedestrian trail system. So, you know, pedestrians don't like, you know, to go up down and they don't like to walk in mud and bank turns where water stands and stuff 
So we were kind of, you know, we were driven to deal with, you know, kind of, you, you had shared use. And so it was a complicated thing. And I, I have to do kind of the rest of the story thing here. I have a thing in one of the classes I talked about. And I will say, and this again is, you know, blasphemy. There is no such a thing as a shared trail or multiple user trail. Because when you build a trail, you have to build it for the most denigrating, destructive user. So whether it's equestrian that has people on it and bikes, what is it? It's shared. They say, well, shared use. No, it isn't. It's an equestrian trail that happens to have hikers and bikers on it. So the standard, what's the standards you have to build to? You have to build to equestrian. So if you have a pedestrian and bike trail, you have to build it so that it will sustain bike use, which means it's tough because of the drainage issues. But there's also flow. So the bottom line on this thing is after we get this trail done, it's, it's like six miles. And it is fabulous trail, beautiful trail. And we happened to have, and I can't remember the guy's name now. I just, I don't remember. But we had a guy that was, I guess, a semi-professional mountain bike. You know, he competes in a lot of this stuff. And he's in his 30s, I'm thinking. And he's out and he's there for something. They had some event in Davis or Thomas. And he came down. He heard about the new trail. And so he rode the trail and he came up. Then we were kind of still working on part of it. And he introduced himself and he says, this is the best flow trail that I have ever ridden in my life. He said, I only had to use my brake one time. And so coming from, I mean, we're not in the bike community, but they come from someone who I guess was, and certainly, you know, kind of the upper level, the near elite levels of mountain biking to come up and tell us it was the best flow trail that he'd ever ridden in his life. Uh, I think that's, uh, you know, that's quite a compliment. So, but I will also tell you that back in, we have been building flow trail before people knew there was flow trail because and I don't know what I told you, our view of trail, we're kind of Zen, you know, the trails are already there. They exist. We just uncover. And that's our view of it. We'd never impose anything on the land. We tried to, you know, do what the land and the environment leads us to do. So you know, that's our philosophy of trail building. Well, with that, do you have any words of wisdom you want to close with? Yeah, life is like a bell curve. I'm on the right-hand side of the bell curve. Uh, I've bounced twice off the, <laughs> you know, the landing strip. And the sad thing about it is if you get older, you know, it's like with the business, we're finally being kind of successful in the business and everything after 30 some years. Not that we weren't successful. We just weren't making money. Now we're being successful and we're making money that I'm not going to be around to do it. And the last thing it's kind of, you ever see secondhand lines, the movie anyway, you know, there's a story that God tells, you know, all the young people, you know, life lessons. That there is a life lesson thing that I will share with you because a lot of your people are volunteers and stuff, and I call it sands through the hourglass of life. That when you are dealing with volunteers, 
you know, like building trail or your trail manager or project manager, you have people come in. You better be ready for them with the tools and the logistics and stuff to support. Because what are they giving you? They're giving you part of their life. And you only have so many sands in that hourglass of life. And you come in and somebody gives you eight or ten hours and you're not ready for them. What you have done, you have stolen eight or ten hours of their life. So I hate people, and that's a strong word, that don't respect, you know, what people are doing when they volunteer their time. And time is the most valuable thing that we have. So that's what I'll leave you with. Yeah, I impart that on my two younger daughters all the time. Yeah. And the motto that I live by is, the clock's ticking, start living. That's right. Well, Charlie, it was, a, it was a pleasure to be able to meet you here at the PTBA conference in Bentonville Yeah, and get a couple of your stories. And we've got a bunch more stories that we didn't record. And, yeah. But it's, you know, Charlie's obviously a really incredible human for doing what he's done within the trail community, thinking outside of the box and really going from the idiot sticks yes. all the way to a mechanized train going through the woods yes. and covering it from getting rid of the rock to covering, you know, doing all the erosion control aspect in the back end with chipping the wood and everything. Yeah. And, it's, it's just incredible to get those stories, and I, I look forward to sharing this with, with everybody. So thank you very much, Charlie. You're more than welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. Stay tuned as we have more content coming to you that was recorded while attending the PTBA Sustainable Trails Conference in Bentonville, Arkansas. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you consume your audio content. This will ensure that you have the latest Trail Fact episodes, and it will help the show as well. Please take the time to leave a rating and review wherever you consume your podcasts. This podcast has been made possible by Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature in Trail Fact, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.